Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. We're only looking at one verse this morning. As we continue our study on being in union with Christ, which we have talked about for months now, I think I've told you I intended for this union with Christ series to last only about four weeks, beginning four weeks before Easter and going up talking about union with Christ and the resurrection, and then it just kind of kept growing and kept blooming and kept blossoming. At least that's the way I saw it. I hope you did too. But over the last several weeks, we have been looking at, at union with Christ as it relates to Romans chapter 8. Now, again, I'll be honest with you, I intended for there to be one sermon on that. Union with Christ based on what Romans 8, 1 says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as I told you last week, that, that first verse is really the umbrella of the whole chapter. And, and once you get that verse down, everything else in this chapter is kind of unpacking that and kind of giving you a, a little amplification of that. And so when you look at these other verses that we've looked at and talked about all that it means to be in Christ, being having the Holy Spirit who testifies with our spirit, that we really are sons and daughters adopted in the family of God. When we talk about, as we did last week, about prayer, where Paul says, you know, we don't even know how to pray. And yet, since we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groans and moanings, and, and he prays for us in ways that we don't know how to pray. I mean, th this being in union with Christ is an all-encompassing truth for the entirety of our Christian life. It's not just for the beginning. It's not just for the ending when we finally go to be with him in glory, but it's for everything about the Christian life. And after last week's 26 and 27, talking about prayer, we, we come today to look at cha chapter 8, verse 28. Now, I dare say that verse 28 is probably one of the most well-known, maybe second only to John 3, 16, one of the most beloved by many people, uh, especially believers, but also perhaps one of the most misunderstood and even misquoted verses in all of the Bible, especially in all of Romans. Paul is very specific and very clear on what he wants us to understand out of this, and it all, is all contingent upon, all built upon, all with the understanding of being in union with Christ as a believer, being one with him, Christ in us and us in him, and he in the Father, and we're all together in this thing in, in a relationship that is just astonishing as we understand the fullness of it and the completeness of it, and even in some cases, the complexity of it. But hear what Paul writes in this one verse. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to see something right off the bat here. Last week, as we talked about prayer, Paul said in verse 26, he said, but we also ourselves, excuse me, that's verse 23, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray. In verse 26, he says, we do not know. In, in verse 28, he says, for we know, and we know this to be true. Paul begins this verse with a contrast. He wants to understand that there are some things that we don't know. 
there are some things in this life that we struggle with and we struggle about and we don't know how to handle them, we don't know how to go through them. And so many times, you know, the sicknesses, the suffering that says will come to every believer, the, the, the pain that we will suffer, which is a part of life. Paul says there's sometimes we just don't know how to pray. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. So there's that uncertainty. But he comes to verse 28 and he makes a, a glaring contrast. And I, I dare say that you can't understand verse 28 unless you see it in light of verse 26. That we don't know. And here Paul says, but we know. What do we know? We know Paul says that God is at work causing all things to work together for good. For those who love him, for those who are called according to to his purpose. Now, it's unfortunate that the authorized version, the old King James version, had as its translation there, and we know all things work together for good. Because that typically has become the way it's been quoted down through the years, and it's usually left at that point. We know all things work together for good. How many people have you ever talked to who have no relationship to Christ who say, oh, but we know all things work together for good? We know that to be a reality. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying that everything is just of its own volition, of its own work, of its own natural process going to work together for good. That is not what Paul is saying. He's very specific here that it is God who is at work working all things together for good. And we'll see that in a minute. In our world today, we face life in a myriad of ways. Some people face life as though all of life is just one big chance. You're just taking a big chance. You know, I, I always stand amazed at the growth and the expansion of the lottery in our nation, uh, the growth and the expanse of, of gambling itself, you know, and in some places beginning to collapse like Atlantic City and places. But, but people are just enthralled by gambling, games of chance. I think that's really a parable of a lot of people in our nation today. We, they just live life as though everything's based on hopefully having some good luck happen in their life. Hopefully seeing some things happen by chance that, that they can somehow be in the right place at the right time or else they're going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So there's kind of hoping and living as though life is but one big game of chance and hoping in a kind of a false hope that they can get through it. A lot of people live life looking at it as though it's by chance. There are other people who live life looking at it as though it were, were not chance at all, but that it's all very much under control of some kind of cosmic fate. Not God, but, but just fate. You know, if, if it's to be, it's going to be, and they kind of go through life like an Eeyore, if you're a Winnie the Pooh fan. You know, oh me. It's just going to happen. Nothing I can do about it. Oh, my. It's just happening. I mean, how many people wake up every morning? And, and among this, a lot of Christians. And the first thing they go to look at in the newspaper is not to look at the headlines, not to look at, at the sports page, not to look at my favorite part, the comic page, but, but they go to the paper and then they go straight to the horoscope. Because somewhere in the back of their mind, they've got it that somehow the stars being in alignment and Jupiter being matching up with Mars or whatever, that the stars are going to have great impact on their life today. I've known people who are professing believers who would not go to work on some days because after reading their horoscope, it just says, stay home, it's going to be a bad day. And they've done that. Now, I know most people say, 
oh, I just, I just read them for fun, you know. It's just kind of fun and funny. I don't really take them seriously. Yet, then why do you read them? Why do you even give credence to something that's, that's supposedly a, a, a stars being in alignment, giving fate to your life to direct how your life is going to go? The Bible gives us a totally different way of viewing life. It's not by chance, and it's not by fate. It's not by Jupiter lining up with anything. But the Bible teaches us that the hand of God is at the helm. The Bible teaches us that we serve, as, as those who are in Christ, we serve a mighty God who is in control of all things. He's sovereign over all things. And, and, and we don't have to fear life. We don't have to worry about life. We don't, we don't have to struggle with how is, it, how is fate going to deal with something or how is chance going to deal with something. When, when we know God and know Jesus Christ and are in union with him, we understand the scripture says that God is at the helm of all things. The Bible teaches that the providence of God is a, and confidence in the providence of God is a faith that is so bold, so unapologetic, that we really can't believe it halfway. We, we can't say, well, we believe God's in control of some things, and we usually lay over that over to the good things that happen to us, and, and Satan's in control of you know, all the bad things, and God's at, at a loss to be able to do anything about those. Paul is saying here in, vo- in verse 28 that either all things work together for our good or nothing makes sense. Cancer doesn't make sense. Suffering doesn't make sense. Financial difficulties don't make sense. Because if God is not in control, if God is not working things together, all things, good things, bad things, then it just doesn't make sense. You see, you can't just sort of believe Romans 8.28. You can't just say, well, I kind of believe that. I I really would like to believe that. No, Paul leaves no ambivalence here whatsoever. Paul says there is either a personal confidence in God's providential love in all things, including bad things, and is powerful, and it makes a difference in your life, or God's just a cosmic bystander who wishes things would happen good but can have no hand in them at all. What a tremendous truth the Apostle Paul is making here when he says, listen, if you are in Christ... If you are in union with Christ, this is an amazing promise to you. If you are in Christ, this is something that's worth shouting about. If if you are in Christ, this is a promise planted right here in the middle of, of the book of Romans that says to you and me, if you're in Christ, God is watching over you, God is caring for you, God is protecting you, God is working all things together for your good, God is at work in your life if you are in union with him, if you love him, if you're called according to his purpose, is how Paul puts that in light of of chapter 8 verse 1. It means we trust him in all things at all times. There's a story that you probably know, you may know, you may not. But in, in the 1740s, there was a ship sailing from England to Georgia. Now, Georgia was, at that time, pretty much a prison colony. 
Some people think Georgia probably still is, but that's another story. But in those days, it was a prison colony. That was for Ricky. Uh, it was a prison colony. There's a ship sailing from England with a lot of Englishmen on it to, to Georgia to, to, re- to settle it, to bring some things there. There was also on board that ship 26 German Moravian missionaries, men, women, and children. And as they traveled across the Atlantic, they, they were holding a worship service in the middle of the, of the boat. They were singing, they were praying, they were, they were rejoicing the goodness of God. And all of a sudden, a storm, a horrible storm, came upon the ship and began to toss it to and fro. And, and, and the English passengers began to scream out in panic, scared for their lives, just knew they were going to die. And they noticed this group of 26 Moravians, women, men, and children, they just kept singing. They kept worshiping. And they calmly sang on. Toward the end of that, an Englishman that was one of the passengers asked one of the men, said, were you not afraid when that storm hit? And the Moravian gentleman said, no. Praise God. I thank God, no. I wasn't afraid. And he said, but weren't your women and children afraid? And again, he answered, no. I thank God. We're not afraid to die, neither me or the men or the women or the children, because we know our God is in control. That astonished Englishman was a man by the name of John Wesley, who later became one of the, the greatest evangelists one of, the, 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 uh, of all history, as he saw, practiced what those Moravians said they believed. Saw it lived out, saw that they believed John, excuse me, Romans 8, 28 was a reality. And John Wesley saw that in their lives. And, and, and it just made an impact on him that caused him to start pursuing the truth of the gospel. As the Holy Spirit opened his eyes. I wonder sometimes what our lives would look like if we feared nothing but God. I wonder what our lives would look like if the storms of life, whether it be a a literal storm like a tornado or a hurricane or an earthquake or whatever might come, if we didn't fear those, or storms of life like sickness and cancer and bankruptcy and and everything else that tends to kind of throw us off kilter and cause us to think, oh, I've got to be in control of this myself, or, or fate has dealt me a, a bad blow, or chance has given me a bad deal, or, or Satan's really trying to mess me up here. I wonder what our lives would look like if we feared nothing but God. It would be lived in a constant testimony. Our lives would be lived in a constant testimony to the goodness and power and grace of a living and true God. Think about that. What would your co-workers think if they saw you when things don't go just right, saying, but I serve a God who is in control, who is working all things together because I belong to him. He's working all things together for my good. Even this. Even this. So amid the perplexities of life amid the struggles of life what is it that we can say as believers that we know not that we speculate on not that we not that we don't know as we sometimes don't know how to pray 
what are some things, what are what, what are what I might call four absolute certainties that we as believers can know in the midst of it? They're all found right there in verse 28. The first thing we can know that all things are involved in this process. Not some things, not most things, not nice things, but all things. Paul says, I want you to know that God causes all things. So the first thing we have to understand is, is to recognize that God is working such, in such a way that every event, every circumstance, every moment of your life is in His hands if you're in Him. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, I hate to break this to you, but this is not a universal promise to all men and women everywhere. This is not for everybody. But it is a great and glorious promise to those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who are in Christ, in union with Christ, who have been, who, who've been bought, if you will, by the blood of Christ. That's who the promise is for. And it includes all things. But understand this, make no mistake, because I can see your little minds working right now. Oh, that means even my sin. If I go out and sin, it's okay because God's working even those things together. He is going to work all those things, but this in no way condones your sin, your disobedience. He'll take that and he'll mold it and he'll use it to teach you something, usually in a form of discipline in your life, but, but it doesn't condone it in any way at all. So we know it involves all things, Paul says. The second thing we can know certainty with certainty, is that all things work. Now, Paul says, we know that God causes all things to work. In other words, on this very day, at this very moment, God is going about unseen in your life and in my life, moving His loving purpose in our lives in a thousand different ways. The way he works in my life for good will not necessarily be the way he works in your life for good. We're not going through the same circumstances. We're not having the same struggles. We're not facing the same dangers and even sufferings. But on this day, we know that all things are working because God is working in our life to bring that about. I had, I had Pastor Scott read that passage out of, out of Genesis on the story of Joseph, out of, out of that whole book, of uh, the latter part of the book of, of Genesis, you have the, the story of Joseph. You know probably most of the story of Joseph. He was a young child, had brothers. His father loved him, gave him a, what we always refer to as the coat of many colors, a, a coat of authority, a, a coat of honor, and, and the brothers were jealous about it. They, they hated him for it, so they plotted to kill him. They put him in a pit. And we know that the older brother said, we can't do this. So he went down there, they pulled him out, they sold him into slavery. And, and he went through a whole, all different ways he suffered during that time. Falsely accused of various things, sold into Potiphar's house, rose to the top of Potiphar's house. There Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, and when he refused to be involved with her in that way. She lied about him and called out and had him arrested, thrown into a dungeon, 
There he suffered for a long time in that dungeon. But it's amazing if you read the story, and I encourage you to go and read the whole story of Joseph. You know, it says, but, but Joseph's face was not sad. God was with him. God was working in his life the whole time. God was working out, even though it hadn't been written yet, Romans 8, 28, in Joseph's life. Finally, the, the baker and the cupbearer get thrown into prison with him, and they're accused of something, and they have dreams. And, and Joseph, I can tell you what that dream means. One of you is going to have your head cut off. The other is going to be restored back to your place of honor. And so they get, one gets all excited about it. I don't think the other one got so excited about it, but one got all excited about it. And, and finally, when the time came, it happened. And as the, they were leaving, Joseph says, listen, when you're restored to your place, don't forget me. Don't forget I interpreted that. And, and they did. He did. And for two more years, Joseph languished in prison in a dungeon. And, and finally, one day, <laughs> Pharaoh started having some dreams. And he had these cows that were lean, eating up fat cows and all sorts of strange dreams. And the cupbearer said, you know, I hate to bring this up again because it's not a very great pleasant memory, but do you remember the time you threw me in the dungeon? Well, I met a, a young Hebrew boy there who was in prison for something he was accused of in Potiphar's house. And I had a dream, and the baker had a dream, and, and you know what? He interpreted those dreams perfectly. You cut the baker's head off, you restored me to my place of service as a cupbearer. He, he hit the dream dead on. So Pharaoh sends for him after two years. Now understand, when, when the baker and the cupbearer were there and Joseph came to them, he asked them a very strange question. Why are your faces so sad? I mean, they're in prison. They're in a dungeon. But Joseph's countenance was not sadness at all because he, he knew that God was still at work in his life. So Pharaoh brings him up, tells him dreams, he interprets the dreams, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. You better plan for the famine during the seven years of plenty and get ready for it because it's coming. And so Pharaoh gives him a place of honor, raises him into the height, if you will, of his household, makes him second over all the nation, second only to him, only to the king, only to Pharaoh. Dresses him in his Egyptian clothing makes him look like he belongs there. And then his brothers come. Now, I won't tell the whole story, but when they finally find out, as Pastor Scott read just a little bit ago, that that was their brother, the one they sold into slavery, the one they plotted to kill, the one that they told their father had been killed by smearing animal blood all over his tunic and all over his coat of many colors and took it back and said, an animal has killed. They lied to their father. An animal has killed your, your son. And we couldn't, we couldn't help him. How would you have reacted? Well, I dare say most of us reacting in the flesh would have said, brothers, you know what? You can bring my father back here and I'll feed him royally, but you're not getting a crumb. And more than that, once you get my father back here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of you guys. I'm going to show you a bit of your own medicine. He didn't do that. Because see, God was at work in his life all through that story. And God was with him. And God was with him. And so 
when he meets those brothers and finally brings his brothers back, or his father back, in, in the 50th chapter of Genesis, he looks at his brothers, those treacherous brothers, those evil brothers, those brothers who wanted only harm for him, and he said this, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The hand of God was at work in Joseph's life. Folks, if you're in Christ, the hand of God that was, at, that was at work in Joseph's life is also at work in your life. I hope you never get in the situation Joseph did, spending years in a dungeon somewhere. I hope you never have your family hating you so much that they want to kill you or sell you as a slave somewhere. I hope you never face anything like that. And, and that's good. But I want you to know that we know that all things work are in, at a part of God's work in your life, His unseen hand, even right now, His hand of providence. Third thing that Paul makes clear is that not only is it all things, and not only all things working in God's providential care, but it's all things are working together for good. Working together for good. Working together for your good, your strengthening, your Christ-likeness, your development in your Christian walk, and also for the glory of God in your life. He's working all things together for good. Doesn't mean bad things aren't bad. Don't get me wrong. Doesn't mean cancer doesn't stink. Doesn't mean that, that financial loss isn't painful. It doesn't mean all things are good. There are bad things, but it means that God in the life of his children is taking even those bad things and he's working them together. He's blending them together. He's molding them in your life to make all things work together for an ultimate good. Now, I've got to be honest with you. For some of us, it may only come when we see him face to face in glory. Hey, that's not so bad. That's good. But the truth of the matter is, Paul wants us to understand that we are not left alone in the midst of suffering. We're not left alone when we don't know how to pray. We're not left alone when it looks like the world is collapsing around us, when it looks like ISIS is winning and the stock market may crash tomorrow, when all those things are going on. We don't have to fear because we know that our God reigns and our God's in control. And as his children, he's working all things together for our good right now. At this very moment, it's working all things together for good. All things working for our good and for His glory. There's one final thing. Who is this for? A lot of times people quote the old authorized version and they leave it at that. For, for we know all things work together for good. You can't stop there. You, you can't even stop with the... The New American Standard that says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. You, you can't take that first part of the statement and pull it out of context of prayer and, and, and union with Christ and say, okay, that's just an assurance. I'll just wait. It'll be, it'll be fate and chance and God and all this kind of working together. No, no. He says, I want you to understand, all things work together for a specific and particular people. For whom? There's a for whom here. Not everybody. It's for those who are called according to his purpose. It's for those who love God. Now, I don't have time to do a whole tracing of this, but you go back into the, 
into the Old Testament even, into the Psalms, into the prophets. And you'll find that that phrase, those who love God, is a statement that's used for those who have personally committed their lives to His glory. Those who have personally said, I am following Him. I am with Him and He is with me. I, am, I love Him because I'm His disciple. And the same is the true in the New Testament. Those who love God are those who have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Those who love God are those who have said, Jesus is Lord. And, and not just saying He's Lord in a kind of casual matter-of-fact way, but says through their life, He is Lord. Those who trust Him when the storms of life come up, like those Moravian missionaries did. We know our God is in control. We know our God is a Psalm 93 God. Our God reigns, and the earth may shake, and the mountains may tremble, but it will not be shaken, it will not be broken ultimately, because our God reigns. Wow. What a glorious truth. Those who love God are those who are committed to Christ. And, and, and those who are called according to His purpose. There is a calling in the life of the believer to the purposes of God. We act as though life is all about us, don't we? We act as though life is me pursuing what I want. And I want it now. And I want it the way I want it. And I want it how I want it. I want it when I want it. I, I want life now in a, in a special way that's just for me. Paul says, you know, the real sign of loving God, the real sign, the real mark of those who really love Him is that they're called according to His purpose. To His purpose. His purpose of missions, His purpose of worship, His purpose of evangelism, His purpose of, of discipleship, His purpose of, of honoring Him as God. I, I, just, I just love the way this promise will transform the way we face the good, the bad, and the failings in life. When we understand what Paul is saying here, I want you to see this. When we understand this, it leads to gratitude and joy even for the routine things of life. When we understand this, there's a gratitude toward God and there's a joy in them even when things are just kind of mundane because we know He's at work. Second, this, this truth re removes general fear and anxiety when life goes wrong from our perspective. It removes fear and anxiety because we know Him. We love Him. He's at work within our life. And finally, this verse, this truth of being in union with Christ and, and, and this amazing promise... This wonderful verse gives us the confidence that we cannot ruin God's good purposes in our life. Even though we blow it sometimes. Even though mm, we can really slip up, can't we? We can do things that, quite honestly, I can do things that I can slap myself upside the head and say, that was really dumb. 
doesn't, it doesn't ruin God's purpose in my life. I know Him, and I'm pursuing Him, and that becomes my passion. That becomes more what I want out of life more than anything else, more than money, more than possessions, more than fame, more than popularity. I just want to know Him. Fulfill His call in my life. You see, what Paul is saying here is, listen, there are times, even in our prayer life, when we just don't know what to say. But this is something we know. This is something we are sure of. This is something that is set in concrete. We know that God is at work in every person's life who is in Christ, in union with Christ, to work all things together for good in their life because they love God and they're called according to His purpose. What is God's purpose in your life? There may be some of you sitting here this morning and you never even thought about it. You know, I thought life was just, you know, Christian life was just saying, I love Jesus, I get baptized, join the church, now I do what I want to do. You know? There's a side, there's, some, there's almost an element of truth to that because if you're really in Christ, what you want to do is His purpose in your life. It's Luther's old statement. Luther said, you know, trust Christ and do what you want. He didn't mean trust Christ and go out and sin all you want. He meant trust Christ and really believe in Him and He will work His purpose in your life and what you want is what He wants in your life. Just trust God and do as you like key is trusting him the key is desiring his purpose in your life above everything else have you thought about what is his purpose for your life i would i would dare say it's it's something that is enormous if you're living a little life right now in relation to him you're not even touching it yet Something big, something important. What's his purpose in your life? And do you love him? Do you love him with a commitment? Not just a kind of love like you say, I love pizza. I love my dog. Do you really love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength? all your mind that's to be our goal we may not live up to it perfectly but that's to be our goal what is your goal and what is his purpose that's what Paul would challenge us to think about this morning let's pray together We prepare to sing in a moment a great hymn of commitment. I will glory in my Redeemer. That's his first desire, purpose in your life. That you just glory in him. Boast in him. Know him intimately. I would ask you this morning, do you know Christ? 
you really know him in, an, in a relational way that comes by putting your whole faith in him, not faith in your good works, not faith in, in oh, well, I'm okay, but recognizing your sin and your need for a Savior and Christ being the only Savior that there is. I pray this morning the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see our greatest needs. And for believers here who are in Christ, I pray that He will open our eyes to see this, not by chance, it's not by fate, but it's by His loving hand providential hand moving in our lives to work through even the bad, the difficult, the struggles, the suffering, to bring us to know him better and make us more like him. As we sing this hymn together in a moment, would you reflect on the truth of it? as it relates to your own life. Father, I pray for men and women here this morning, young people that don't know you. Pray, Father, you will do a work in their life, even this morning. We'll draw them to Christ in faith and turn their hearts to you and you alone. I pray for others here, Lord, that have made commitments. Lord, they are backslidden or struggling, and, and Lord, you want to show them the tr glorious truth of Romans 8, 28. I, I pray you work in their lives right now. Lord, do this for the glory of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do this for your glory. And do this for the good in our lives that you're working. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.